Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Ever wonder how jazz legends Wynton Marsalis or Terrence Blanchard might have spent the summer if they'd grown up in Atlanta? Well, youngsters with a love for jazz in our city can attend Joe's Jazz Camp. Later this hour, Joe Granston, the jazz artist behind our show's theme music, shares his summer plans for kids seriously interested in playing, as well as studying jazz history, blues, and improvisation. Plus, Sashi Rome, in our series of artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. First... An estimated 14 million tons of plastic ends up in the ocean every year, affecting marine life, birds, food quality, human health, and contributing to climate change. Atlanta artist and Georgia State University art professor Pam Longabardi has been alerting us to this crisis through her artwork for over 15 years. Her new exhibition, Ocean Gleaning, is on view at the Fall Line Press Studio in Castleberry Hill through April 15th. She joins me now via Zoom. Pam, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise. And for those unfamiliar with your organization, The Drifters Project, would you tell us about it? Yeah, it's kind of an elastic entity that became, you know, a way to involve other people with this work. And it sort of shifted it from a solo process to more of a a social practice. So it ends up involving lots and lots of other people and collaborators and individuals who show up for cleanups and whatnot. And so it just has a lot of legs, I guess, that way. Yeah. Why did you feel that upcycling these discarded materials into art would be the best way to communicate the harmful effects of ocean pollution? Well, I really was just so stunned by by what this material looked like. It just had such an aura and a strange, you know, uncanny presence. And it just seemed like this is real. And this is something that has, you know, circumnavigated the globe, either through commerce or as a floating drifter. So it's come back, changed from that experience and it's a wholly different material. And that material has a kind of resonance because it's been acted upon by so many forces and beings. And so I really feel that, you know, these materials have a lot of power that are much beyond something that can be purchased and crafted into, you know, a a piece of artwork. After the world shut down in 2020 due to the pandemic, 
Were you still able to clean up beaches or oceans and create artwork? Well, I have a good stockpile <laughs> and, uh, ready to go. So I wasn't as, you know, I wasn't out of material, let's put it that way. And I did do some local cleanups, though. And I think that's what's really interesting about the pandemic is people discovered the worlds that are available right in their backyards. And I think the creatures that are usually hidden suddenly came out and engaged in spaces that were open at this point and they weren't full of human energy. Mm. So we started to notice all the creatures that live around us. I still delight in all the birds in my garden that I don't remember before the pandemic. Of course, there's more traffic now with many people having returned to sort of a normal life. But are you talking about birds and marine life? Yeah, yeah. I have people that are in contact with me from all over the world, and they were noticing in Costa Rica, you know, large cats were coming down from the higher mountains and just checking it out, you know, for once it was quiet, I think, and they, they really wanted to see what was different. And they found space. Wow. Instead of, you know, it being full of uh, our energy. What a profound impact. Yeah, really. What have been some of the astonishing or shocking things you've found in the ocean? Well, it's hard to really describe them visually without seeing them because some of them are just, you know, a, a piece of plastic that's been chewed on. Let's start with that. I think that's a good place to start. So this plastic floating around in the ocean is being tested as a food source by all kinds of creatures. So one of the things that I find regularly are tooth marks all over pieces of plastic. And, you know, some of them are from enormous sharks. And a shark bite has a very particular triangular shape when it bites into something. Sometimes you can see the entire rim of the, the creature's mouth, and then you get an idea the size of it. I also have seen sea turtle bites. I've seen birds biting things. I've seen all kinds of other toothed fish, even grizzly bears. When we were in Alaska, we saw bear bites into the plastic. So that's one thing that is a really interesting and, and kind of eerie phenomenon. And then the things that are, are kind of transformed, you know, they started off as one thing, but then they become a different thing altogether. And maybe it's a symbolic kind of a form. Maybe it looks like a wave, or maybe it's something that even looks like the piece of a Star of David or a cross. You know, there's all kinds of symbols in this material. And Goodness. yeah, you know, part of what this new project involves is I've been studying and looking at this material for a long time and seeing all these messages in it. And I started to make these big compositions that we started to call them cartouches because they have a certain formality to them um, that is talking about signification and location and presence at these different sites. And so what I did was I kind of cast a wide net out and asked people all over the world that I was in contact with and some that I didn't know at all. I just found them through Instagram and whatever. And asked them to search for their own messages. And so all of these incredible things came back from that. Just phenomenal, thoughtful, beautiful, poetic words that people were moved to speak. Because I do think the ocean is, is actually communicating with us through this material. It's not inert anymore. It's been changed. And if we pay attention to that in a way and um, listen to it and read it, even forensically, you know, I think there's, there's information to be gathered that might be on the scientific side or might be completely on the poetic side, but it's a form of turning your attention toward something other. And that other is a big, I think, conscious entity that has agency and it is 
interacting with these objects and changing those objects and then displaying them back to us. Pam, how do you decide which pieces will become part of your art installations and what will be recycled? Well, there's kind of two types of materials that I have. I have a very big archive of things that are just, you know, they're sort of the oddities, the really strange things that are like nothing else you've ever seen. And there's a whole lot of those that are part of my book that's coming out. And then there's another source of material that's just, maybe it's of a particular color or shape that I use in the larger compositions. So it's functioning first and foremost in those aesthetically. And then the secondary function of it is of course that you see what that object is and you think about your own interactions with similar types of objects and and therefore, you know, what happens to it after you're done with it. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with artist, activist, and distinguished professor at Georgia State University, Pam Longabardi. You mentioned your book. This exhibition is in support and celebration of your forthcoming book, also titled Ocean Gleaning. Would you tell us more about it? Yeah, it's being published by Fallline Press, and we have been working on it for a very long time. It's been a year, actually, and um, in a couple months, it'll be like the anniversary of when we started. But Bill Bowling and I had conversations about this several years ago, and it got kind of put on the back burner because of COVID and the pandemic and shutting everything down. But then when the timing came for it to be back on the table again, I had just been offered a solo exhibition in Naples, Florida at the Baker Museum. And it's a huge show. So what we have in Atlanta is just a very, very small part of a much larger exhibition, which is down there. And it's simultaneous with the Fall Line show. So it's still on in Naples and it's going on through the end of July. Yeah, I read about that concurrent shows. Talk about being in demand. <laughs> it really speaks to the time we're in. Uh, did you know that the UN just had a consortium of 175 different countries sign a plastic treaty that will take responsibility for the plastic from the beginning of its life through the consumer usage of it and the end of the life too and addresses microplastics and everything it's enormous it's such a huge event and i just love that it literally just passed last night and here we are talking about this today because i think um, myself and everyone else who's been working on this with this material and trying to push something forward in terms of social change. I mean, a very, very big step just happened. So that's amazing and something to really celebrate. Congratulations. I know you are as much an activist as artist. Did you help lobby for that? Well, I've helped in lots of different ways. I wasn't specifically involved in this treaty because it really was coming from the governments of these places, but- ah. Yeah, it's all on the heels of lots and lots and lots of hard work by lots and lots and lots of people all over the world. And I think it kind of added up to a point where we could no longer pretend this wasn't happening. And the fact that governments have stepped up, I think that's the critical change that we just are experiencing right now. Interesting, as one enters a gallery to look at your work, from afar, we see how well-crafted they are and beautiful to admire. Get closer, and the viewer sees that the entire sculpture is made out of these cast-off plastic materials you found in the ocean, which obviously don't belong in the ocean. In that way, your art parallels the way we view the ocean as we look at it from afar. 
we don't necessarily see what's wrong. We don't, the pollution is not always visible, but close up, you see it's filled with debris. Is that parallel or metaphor intentional, Pam? I think it, it actually is a shift in consciousness. I think there's been through the entire industrial revolution, there's been a notion about the ocean as a surface, as something that is just a shallow reflection upon which the shipping industry moves. And one artist I really admire, Alan Sakula, he changed a lot of the way we started to think about that through his project that was photographing sort of the back end of the hidden parts of the shipping industry around the world. And those photographs are really phenomenal and they really you know, started a change from where in this sort of sense of modernity that uh, you know, the ocean was not this surface upon which we moved, but it was in a vast ecosystem subsurface. And that's really where you know, that kind of invisible part was always ignored in some ways. And so now that, you know, we're down under there and we see what's happening and we can really uh, study it and learn from it, then we see that, yeah, this is, this is actually the driving engine of the atmosphere on the planet. It moves our weather. It's so critical to the functioning of all the ecosystems on the planet. So it's in our best interest to really take care. Indeed. We hear such dis things about recycling now. How much of an impact does recycling plastics and paper goods really have on the environment and the ocean in particular? Well, they uh, really have very different effectiveness, I guess we could say. And yeah, the problem with recycling is just the mass of it is not really recycled even after all the sorting and good intentions of many, many people, the plastic that gets recycled from that is about 9%. That's the estimate. So when a plastic producer is talking about recycling this bottle, it really, it's just a sort of shoving the responsibility onto the consumer instead of taking responsibility as the producer. And so what part of this bill addresses that um, the plastics treaty that just got signed in uh, the United Nations Environmental Program Conference is to have the recycling industry also stepped up, you know, and that it's going to have to be more transparent, that it can no longer make people fooled really into thinking that this is taking care of the problem because that's their marketing plan so you can keep buying more plastic and not think about it. Mm. But this is wrong. Literally, they've been lying to people. So that's all coming out right now. What is your call to action for viewers of your artwork? I think it's simply to think about what we do with our material legacy. You know, what are we leaving behind? Are we leaving behind this product that is just filling up the ocean and landfills and spaces that other creatures live in, you know, all around the world. Why do we need to have it? It's not critical. We have plenty of other options that we can use. And I think, you know, when we start to see this material in its true form, I think that you can see that it's it's really a kind of a dark matter. It is not what it seems to be. Mm. You know, for that reason, I think it does have that power I was talking about before. And therefore, it's it takes that power into the social realm and it communicates something. And what it's communicating is that this is not without consequence. And so let's think about this. Mm. I think that perhaps the most striking piece of yours that I have seen to convey that shock and sense of place is the disposable lighters that you collected from the ocean that, when put together, look like this lovely 
rainbow sculpture, but that's not what it is. Yeah, and, you know, the story's even a little bit more intense than that because not only did those lighters come out of the ocean, but they came out of the ocean by a mother or father albatross, and they were fed to the chicks. Oh. Yes, and that's the real tragedy of it. They are literally found in the nests of albatross on Midway. And that means that this amazing ancient creature who's been flying up to the Arctic Circle, you know, for billions of years is now succumbing to this trinket, you know, and and that's another thing that we don't really need. We do not need to have disposable lighters. You can have a refillable lighter. Or you can use matches. <laughs> or don't smoke. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of options. <laughs> well, Pam, thank you for bringing to the fore such a crucial issue facing all of us now and for the thought-provoking, beautiful artwork you create. Thank you so much, Lois. I, I so appreciate your attention and focus on this with me. Pam Longobardi, Atlanta artist and distinguished professor of art at Georgia State University. Her exhibition, Ocean Gleaning, is on view through April 15th at the Fall Line Press Studio and Reading Room in Castleberry Hill. In a moment, Joe Granston, the jazz artist behind our show's theme music shares his summer plans with details on Joe's Jazz Camp. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Jazz does not discriminate by age. And to help nurture a love for jazz among younger players, that is, children, Joe's Jazz Camp returns after a two-year hiatus. Its executive producer, Joe Granston, is among Atlanta's most celebrated jazz musicians. The trumpeter and singer began playing at a very young age himself in the ensembles of Tommy Dorsey, Barry White, Aretha Franklin, and The Temptations, among others. His 16-piece big band has toured and played in storied venues such as the Blue Note, and has been based here in Atlanta since 2006. Joe's week of jazz workshops and performance opportunities takes place at Callenwold Fine Arts Center June 5th through the 10th, with registration open throughout the month of May. Joe Granston joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you very much, Lois. How are you? I am glad to be talking with you. My goodness, you are such a friend of the show. Your music is heard daily on City Lights. And over the years, 
we've enjoyed hearing you talk about your band, your recordings, your concerts. Joe, at what age did you become interested in jazz? Oh, boy, a long time ago. I remember specifically I was 11 years old and my father brought a Chet Baker record home from the record store. It was actually a vinyl record. It was in the mid 80s, I guess, or the early 80s and left it on my bed with a little note for when I got home from school. And the note said, check this out, son. And I put it on the record player and I was hooked. There was no turning back at that point. And that was unusual because I'm thinking an 11-year-old in the 80s, Chet Baker was very highly regarded, but probably not what your contemporaries were listening to. <laughs> That's for sure. Especially my two sisters. I have an older sister and a younger sister, and they thought I was crazy. They loved listening to Van Halen and, and REO Speedway, the rock bands of the 80s. But I was, a, I was, of course, playing in the band at that age, and I've been playing trumpet since fourth grade. So I was always kind of in love with, with the trumpet and the sound of the trumpet and the sound of the orchestra and the wind ensemble. And of course, I'd been exposed to jazz, but this, this was the instance when jazz just kind of hit, hit my blood and hit my heart, and it was, it was time to go down that road. It was a transformative moment for you. And in fact, your voice has been compared to Chet Baker. Yes, I, I think that when I, my mother always told me to sing, even though I was playing trumpet and I was, I was getting work, you know, I was in my 20s and I was playing, I had a little band that I put together. She always said, you should sing. And I, I didn't think it was um, something I wanted to do. And then I started to sing by accident because I was going to get fired from a particular restaurant gig I had here in Atlanta. And uh, they said, well, you need a singer. And they didn't want to pay any more money. So I had to either sing or lose the, the gig. So I started singing. And all I could really hear in my head was that that sound of Chet's trumpet and his voice, very soft, very smooth, very, very laid back, which made sense for the restaurant gig because we were background music anyway. So that's how I started to sing. And that's kind of the direction that I went in for a long time, a really long time, until I put my big band together and, and had to sing with a fuller voice and, and uh, make a little bit more noise, if you know what I mean. And your fuller voice also has echoes of Frank Sinatra. We discussed that at length when you recorded your Sinatra tribute. That was for his centenary, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe it was. And it was a thrill to do that. And it was a lot of work for me to basically unlock my voice is what some of the opera singers and some of the, the very uh, well-known singers that really know how the, the vocal cords work told me. I had spent so many years singing very soft and without a vibrato and without much air support. I could get a nice tone and I could certainly um, hopefully sell a song, but I had locked my, myself up. I wasn't able to take a big breath and sing and, and let those vocal cords vibrate and, and really create a nice vibrato. So to do that Sinatra record took a lot of work, a lot of practice. I took some lessons with a great vocal coach, Catherine Dunn, and spent a lot of time at the piano singing scales. I'd play them on the piano and then I would sing them. It was, it was a lot of work, but I think I've unlocked my voice now and I feel very comfortable when I sing these days. The very thought of you makes my heart sing like an April breeze on the wings of spring and you appear in all your splendor my one and only love I love that recording and love hearing you sing it's funny when you just told the story about how the restaurant owner said, all right, either you sing or you're fired, <laughs> or you get a singer and you're fired. I thought about Nat King Cole, whose start was as a jazz pianist, and he never had any intention of becoming a singer until someone sort of dared him to one day, I think it was Sweet Lorraine that he chose to sing. And, of course, now looking back, we think, oh, my goodness, would we have been deprived of that silken smooth voice of his had he not been dared to sing? 
Isn't that true? I mean, can you imagine the the music world, the jazz world, the great American songbook world without Nat King Cole's voice? I mean, it's it's right up there with with all the top the top vocalists. So I I think everybody has at least every musician has a some type of voice, some type of singing voice that can be expressed at some point. Maybe it's not on the level where you're going to record records or not, but I certainly didn't grow up being told that I had a good singing voice or I sang in the school plays and I sang in the chorus. My father's a wonderful singer. My uncle was on Broadway as a singer. So it was in the family, but I didn't really think that I was gifted with that. I thought I was much more of a, a trumpet player, but, but as I work on it and as I study the greats like Nat King Cole and uh, Frank Sinatra and, and all the wonderful names that we could rattle off here, I realized that, that maybe I have a little something to offer, and it is very comparable to my trumpet playing. First of all, I can rest my lips if my trumpet playing is, is going on a little too long and I'm tired, then I can sing a song. But I kind of try to sing and play in a similar fashion. But anyone who has ever attended one of your concert performances sees that you don't rest at all. You're simply alternating between trumpet and voice. And it's quite a workout. (laughs) Let's hear about the week's programming for Joe's Jazz Camp. What can students expect? Oh, this is fun. This Joe's Jazz Camp that we put together is such a thrill for, for so many young students and also for the teachers. It's pretty intensive. It's basically Sunday through Friday. Throughout the day, the students ages like 12, 13, all the way up to 19 or 20 are going to be around a lot of the members of my big band, teaching them, teaching them jazz history, teaching them improvisation, teaching them the blues, teaching them music theory, jazz theory, teaching them composition. One class to another, they just move throughout the day. And it's you watch them on Sunday come in a little bit nervous, excited for the week, but a little bit nervous. Uh, they have all these these big tall people around them that are <laughs> professionals in their field. And, and then by, by Tuesday, they start to come out of their shell a little bit. And by Wednesday, they can't wait. They're already playing. They're already playing songs. We've already broken them up into combos, jazz combos of four and five and six players in each combo. We've already broken them up into three or four big bands, like my big band with 17 musicians. It becomes this very exciting, very happy, very educational, but very intense week-long jazz camp to give them a little bit of what it feels like to play this music, which is the greatest thrill in the world. So it sounds like kids have to have some proficiency with an instrument. Is there an age requirement and a certain level of musicianship you require as part of the application? Well, we put on the um, on the application ages 13 through 19, 12 through 19, but We've accepted students that, that are 20, 21. We've accepted students that are 10 and 11 are just extraordinary musicians. So there is some level of musicianship that's required probably to get the most out of this camp. If there was a student that's just starting out that wanted to be a part of it, there's room for that student too. We have a whole another section of the, of the camp that, that deals with the very, very beginnings and the very basics of, of jazz music. But it'd be nice if they had a little bit of um, ability on their instrument. In other words, if they had just started playing trombone the week before, it might not be the camp for them. We have on the website, the audition material, that will show them what, what they would need to play for the audition and how we place them in certain combos and certain big bands. So we've had students that have gone on and are doing now great in New York City and great at Berkeley College of Music. And we've had students that this is more of a hobby for them that have gotten so much out of the week, so much thrills uh, and, and excitement out of the week and so much soul searching has been done on this weekly journey. So it's, it's really been a lot of fun and, and exciting to see and watch these kids grow. program overview on the website, UT's daily faculty jam sessions. It's great to hear that the faculty will have fun playing as much as the kids. How do these sessions typically go down, Joe? Do the kids get involved? For the faculty jam sessions, very rarely do the kids get up and play. Sometimes they do, but the artistic director of the camp, Lee Watts, great friend of mine, He's put together like a very cool 
daily program so that when it comes time for the faculty jam session, they really want to rest their lips. <laughs> they really want to rest their fingers if they're playing piano or guitar. And the faculty gets up and we just jam. One of mine and also Lee's uh, concerns when we were younger, when we would go to camps, is that a lot of times you have these incredible educators, but sometimes they talk so much and they never play. And the students want to hear you play. They want to hear what this is really all about. And if they can get a 45-minute jam session where the teachers in a, in a very fun and exciting way are trying to cut each other, are trying to outplay each other, are trying to bring the music to another level, that can really inspire students. Uh, the, the main reason why that faculty jam session is a part of every day at this camp is because, uh, and I think I mentioned this to you before, so I'll keep it very short, but when I was about the same age as some of these students, when I guess I was 10 or 11 years old or 12 years old, we had a trumpet player come to our school in Buffalo, New York, in my middle school, and he played with our band, with our win ensemble. His name is Alan Vizzuti, great, great trumpet player. And when he played and I heard him play, I was transformed into knowing that this was the career I was choosing just by hearing him play the trumpet. Of course, I'd heard the trumpet play before, but the way he played it and the way he sounded and the way he made that trumpet sound, I was sold. So we want, we want to inspire the kids through that and not just through our lecturing, if you know what I mean. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the executive producer of Joe's Jazz Camp, trumpeter, band leader, and singer Joe Granston. Jazz musicians come from all backgrounds, and some are academically trained, others learn by doing. What's your personal philosophy of teaching jazz, a focus on music theory and exercises, or more about the experience of just playing in a group? I think it's a, um, a combination of all of them. I personally am much more for the, the school of thought where you learn by ear, where you listen to the, the players from the past and you try to copy them. The jazz that we love, the early 1950s jazz, the, it's kind of called bebop. Some people call it bebop. It's really a language. It's really a language of the different cliches and different um, licks, you might say, and different runs that all work together that follow certain chord changes. And you can learn them through a book. You can learn them by, by downloading them off the internet, but they don't really hit your heart until you close your eyes and pull them off of a record. It would be just like, Lois, if you and I were going to put $10,000 on the table and whoever can speak, let's say, Italian, in six months better gets the money and I go to some school here and learn Italian from a in a class with a book and you go to Italy and you spend all your time in Italy but when you come back I'll be able to say you know where's the airport where's the restaurant what time is it my name is Joe but you'll be able to you'll have all the inflections you'll probably be able to say some different sentences that have nothing to do with with the things you might need just to speak Italian on a much lower level so because you listened to it and you hung out with Italian people speaking Italian. So that's why I think it's so important for these, these students to hear the music being played. There's going to be a lot of ear training at this camp, a lot of closing your eyes and try to figure out what's being played up there. Ear, ear training can, can work very fast. You can, you can get very excited about it and, and learn very quickly. And your ear can develop very quickly, I think. Yeah. Making stuff up is obviously a strong talent for many kids. Kids are imaginative. How do kids take to jazz improvisation? Does that imagination translate to this medium? I think it does. And it goes back to another story of mine. When I went to jazz camp as a very young student, we were taught the blues scale. We were taught a couple of different scales, the blues scale and the bebop scale in the first two days of, of camp. And I had never heard those scales before and I didn't know what they were. So just learning those scales and learning those notes and going over and over them again in three or four different keys was a challenge for me. But by the third day, the teacher had the band play the blues. And he said, now the only notes you can use are, are notes from the blues scale. And he put it up on the board. And so we could see the notes. But after two or three times around the blues, he turned the board around and, and we now we had to hear the notes and just use what we could remember, basically. And I remember I played a certain combination of those notes in a certain way that swung maybe a little bit. I lost my mind. I was so excited when I got in the car, when my father picked me up, I, the first thing I said, oh, my God, Dad, I improvised. 
I made something up. It was so exciting. There was nothing to it, but it was something that had never been played before in that order, in that time period, in that with that amount of swing or lack of swing, depending on <laughs> how it sounded. I don't even remember. But that was another reason why this camp was so important to me to, to show these kids that they can create something and they can come up with something new and fresh. Jazz camp is returning after two years hiatus, we mentioned, obviously because of the pandemic. During that time, were you able to work out any online programs? We gave that a lot of thought, Lee Watts and myself, and we just decided, let's just take a little break and regroup and, and spend as much time as we can with our families, figure out a way that we can make a living ourselves and and play and get better on our instruments. And when the pandemic's over, we'll connect with the students again and we'll get back on it. We, we really wanted to do that, but we just, we just thought we're just not ready for that yet. And we didn't want to do it. If we wanted to do it, it would have to be at the highest level possible. And we just weren't quite ready for it. Understandable. I remember speaking with you early in the lockdown and hearing just how devastating it was. I don't think listeners realized that you played, what, 300 concerts a year? Yes, the year before the, the pandemic, I did 348. I know that because my tax bill was quite extensive that year. <laughs> <laughs> we try to do that regularly, but then it just all went away, completely went away for a while. Fortunately, or I should say we hope this virus is in the rear view mirror, or at least we will soon reach a point where it's in the rear view mirror. Students will get to play in various sizes of jazz groups. Joe, would you explain the difference between a jazz combo setup and a big band? Yes, the jazz combo is more of a chance to improvise. First of all, it's, it's a lot less musicians. For instance, we will have piano, bass, drums, guitar, hopefully, and then probably a couple of horns, maybe a tenor saxophone and maybe a trumpet. And these, these guys will do the, the typical thing that jazz artists do, where they'll learn the head of a song, the melody of a song. Like, for instance, Happy Birthday. They will learn the, the melody to Happy Birthday and the chord structure that goes into that song. But then that chord structure will repeat over and over and over and over again. And each student will have his or her chance to improvise over those chord changes come up with different melodies, come up with different licks, different um, syncopations, different rhythms to teach them to swing and teach them to create over that same chord change. And then that song will end and we'll go to another song. There's not a whole lot of blending like there might be in a big band. In a big band, you're going to have four trumpets, four trombones, five saxes across the front. And then you'll also have the piano, bass, drums, and the guitar. In that situation, the saxophones, for instance, and the trumpets and trombones, all the horns have to learn a lot more about blending, a lot more about listening to the note they're playing and make sure they're adjusting in such a way so that it's in tune with the rest of the section. They have to learn how to read music on a higher level. Dynamics, for instance, playing quiet and then playing louder, that all comes into play when it comes to a big band. You're, it's this huge team. It's like a football team and everybody's a part of this team. And if everybody does their job, then you have this, this incredible sound that I know that you, that you love. You love the big band sound. Oh, I love it. It's a very rare sound that's done right, so that it's a different way of ensemble playing that's very exciting. Mm. Joe, have you had students return from past jazz camps? We sure have. You know, obviously the pandemic put a damper on that, but prior to the pandemic, I think we had, we had done four years of the camp, and we have a lot of return students. We even had a couple students come back during the summer from college and sign up for the jazz camp and spend the week with us. A couple of them were actually almost too good and, and aged out. So they came anyway and they volunteered and, and they taught and they helped students and they helped us put things together and, and put the programs together for the kids. So it's, it's a very um, worthwhile experience and we do, we do get a lot of returns. Now we've switched. We used to do it up in Milton, Georgia, Alpharetta, Georgia at the Cambridge High School. But we've gotten this wonderful partnership going with the Kalamwal Fine Arts Center. So now we're in town and, and we think that obviously that's a longer drive for the students that have come before that were up in Cambridge, but I think we're in a more central location now so we can get students from the South, the West side, and of course up the North too. All good. Joe Granston, you grace us every day with the composition you wrote 
the first time, which opens and closes our show and has some appearances in between segments. It's just always a joy to talk with you and, of course, to listen to your fantastic music making. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that so much, Lois. Atlanta jazz trumpeter, singer, and band leader, Joe Granston. Joe's Jazz Camp is registering students now for their June 5th through 10th camp at Callenwold Fine Arts Center. Enrollment details, as well as information about sponsoring students, can be found at joesjazzcamp.com. Coming up, multidisciplinary artist Sashi Rome and our series Speaking of the Arts. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Sashi Rom. I am a multidisciplinary artist and I also do murals. I create abstracted imagery in paintings, printmaking, mixed media, and I've also started doing some sculpture. My art practice is really an attempt to resist as well as restore the spirit and emotions of generations of people who've been systematically oppressed. I'm a visual storyteller and a world builder. I offer up a new version of what it is to be black and exist within another space and plane. Not here, but in the other. The in-between, that's what I call it. I've always been a maker and creative, even as a small child. But I went through some really traumatic, life-changing experiences as an adult in the last 10 or 15 years. And it really shifted my focus in what I wanted to do with my time and my energy. Art became my whole entire world, and the world that it offered me became the best thing I could have possibly found. I love books. I love reading, and I've always been inspired by the the worlds that Octavia Butler has been able to create. And because of that, I feel like I'm always interested in making my own version of what I would like to see. The in-between space is my answer to spaces that I don't feel comfortable or feel welcome in. So I'm inspired by possibility and the ability to create. What I do not have, I can make. I've always lived in Atlanta. I am what you would call a local yokel. I'm a Grady baby, born and bred. I love living in Atlanta. I think it is the epicenter of all things creative, from music to fashion, food, and of course, fine arts. We're in the middle of a renaissance right now in fine arts in Atlanta. And I would love to just keep on seeing the growth that I've already noticed happening here. When I do get out of the studio, I go down to Spalding Nick's. I love the work that he shows. I also stop by September Gray. They put on some amazing exhibitions. Zucott does great work too. Those are probably my top three places to visit and look at new work. If you'd like to see more of my work in person, I'd love for you guys to come over to my solo show. It's called Stardust and Red Clay, and it's at the Hatefield Depot Museum. The Hatefield Depot Museum is right in Hatefield, next to the Poor Center. I also have work down in Thomasville, Georgia. There's an exhibition called The Next Hundred Years, and that's curated by Tracy Morrell and Ren Diller. If you want to find me on social media, I'm under Sashi Studio Art on Facebook and IG, and my website is sashistudioart.com. Multidisciplinary artist Sashi Rome and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Sashi's work is on our website, wabe.org. The Atlanta based art platform, Fly on the Wall, presents their annual Works in Progress series 
Excuse the Art next weekend. The group of artists will showcase what they've learned through the program. Each artist was given a small stipend, free weekly studio space, peer feedback sessions, and group discussions about their process. Excuse the Art will be on view from April 7th through 10th at the Windmill Art Center in East Point. More information is on their website, flyonawall.buzz. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Two different local artists have created two amazing Atlanta maps. Monday at 11 a.m., Joseph Vesey tells us about the Atlanta rap map. And George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3, shares the story behind his Atlanta Black Arts Map. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.